0: Welcome back to the Starts with a Bang podcast. Here we talk about all the different ways that the universe grows up. We know how it started. We know what it looks like today. But how did it come to be the way we see it? One of the huge things we've learned from looking back across cosmic time is that the galaxies that exist the way they do today weren't always like this. Back in the distant past, they were smaller, bluer, younger, more compact, and also more pristine. When we look at big galaxies today, like Andromeda and the Milky Way here in our own local group, this is the result of billions and billions of years of cosmic evolution. So how did galaxies get to go from really being pristine clouds of gas that collapse to form stars to the massive spiral-armed behemoths we see today? Find out on this edition of the Starts with a Bang podcast. <music> Giant galaxies like Andromeda and our own Milky Way needed to have time in order to form and grow up. They needed to grow out of initial gravitational seeds. They needed to merge together with smaller galaxies and they needed to accrete matter from the interstellar medium. They needed to form generation after generation of stars to chemically enrich the universe around us. And yet, Even though we only see the universe as it is right now, as the arriving light shows us it to be right now, we can piece together a story despite only having a series of snapshots of how these galaxies evolved and grew up over cosmic time. And here to help us unpack this, I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Ivana Escala to the program. Ivana is a postdoctoral research associate. She is a Carnegie Princeton fellow currently based at Princeton University, and she is an expert in how galaxies and the universe grows up. I'm so pleased to welcome her to the show. Ivana, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the Starts with a Bang podcast.
1: Hello, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast.
0: Yeah, it's my absolute pleasure. So if I wanted to start things off, right, we have right now the James Webb Space Telescope out there in space. It's recently broken Hubble's all-time record for the most distant galaxy or galaxies, I should say, that we've ever seen and yet when we look and examine these galaxies and what's inside of them in detail we see galaxies that are so so different from the galaxies we see today what what is the big question that we should be asking? Or what are some of the big questions that we should be asking if we're interested in sort of determining how did the universe go from these early pristine galaxies to the modern, you know, evolved behemoths that we see and know today?
1: Yeah, so, so one of the big questions I think we should be asking is, is really what role do galaxy mergers have to to play in forming the galaxies that we see today in the local universe? Um, this is sort of an aside, but one of the interesting things about JWST is recently they've been revealing more massive galaxies um, than expected at higher redshifts. But in general, what we see, right, are these, these small uh, blobs that are, are somewhat indistinct, right? And are not similar to the objects we see today, as you've mentioned, right? Um, so the question is, is really in the the details. Um, you know, how does, in the case of more massive galaxies, a disk end up forming and settling um, when early on in a galaxy's history, the interactions with other systems are so violent? Um, what can The present-day observed properties of galaxies tell us about their pasts and their history of merging Um, and how much variation is there from one galaxy and another in its merger history and how does that drive the differences that we see at present day right because we have these things that are are fairly neat spiral galaxies we have these elliptical galaxies which don't have a clear disk structure um, and tend to be more massive and we also have um, even dwarf galaxies with spiral structure and then dwarf galaxies that don't have this. So another question is, does the role, uh, what role does mergers have to play in these, these smaller systems? Um, so in terms of my research and what I, I think about, um, that's really one of the central questions. And this really relates to the nature of, of dark matter and, and structure formation on, on larger scales in the universe as well.
0: So this is this is a big uh, sort of question that uh, you know my field uh, when I was doing my PhD was theoretical cosmology and structure formation in particular. So this is this is something that I'm really interested in as well because when I think about, Okay, how how does the universe grow up? I I I have a very simple picture to start off with, I think. Okay, the universe was born hot, dense, expanding rapidly, but also really really uniform. If we go back to the earliest moments in time, we believe that there were only, you know, very, very tiny over densities and under densities relative to what the average density was. That that if you put your finger down or you put a little box around some volume of the early universe, you would find that maybe it's overdense or underdense, but only by like one part in thirty thousand. So you have to have time pass for these slightly overdense regions to to grow, to attract more matter so that they can begin to gravitationally collapse. They, they have to cool enough and shed that heat, shed that potential energy in the form of heat so that they can actually collapse down to form stars and star clusters and collapse structures. Uh, and then there are this idea that you have these two processes that work together. You have mergers, where where different over-dense regions attract each other and merge together. And you also have uh, this slow, steady accretion from the intergalactic medium, where where surrounding matter, either from normal density or under-dense regions, uh, it preferentially gets given up. And gets drawn into these overdense regions. the The picture I have in my head is that early on, mergers are the dominant factor by which galaxies grow, and then later on, there's accretion that happens. That's the dominant factor in galaxy growth. And even though mergers still happen, uh, they're sporadic. But that doesn't necessarily explain everything that we see. For example, sometimes we get two spiral galaxies of equal size that merge together, uh, and we don't get an elliptical galaxy out of it. We still get a spiral galaxy. Sometimes you get uh, an elliptical galaxy that still has a strong disk in it, something like like the Sombrero galaxy or uh, Centaurus A that that have these hybrid properties of, some of them have elliptical properties and some properties that they have are spiral properties. So I feel like this is a, a complicated question. And if you really want an overall picture, that means you need a large number of examples of things to look at. Is that is that something you find? Is that if you wanna understand this overall picture, you actually need a large number of samples to see on average what's going on in the universe?
1: Uh, yeah, so so this is indeed a, a complex problem as you pointed out. Um, and, it, and really it's a story of complexity, right? Beginning from the early universe when things, uh, were more homogeneous, if you can say, to the abundance of structure that we see today in the present day universe. So we, we need large samples in order to really understand this variation in, in the terms of the different ways that, that galaxies uh, look um, and to fully understand how these different features are, are actually arising. And that's something that I don't think that we understand at this point Um, at the same time though there there's difficulty in in the sense of when you are looking for really large samples you need to go further out into the universe Um, and as you're going further away these galaxies become more difficult to study so there is still much to be gained from looking at the local universe the galaxies that are the closest to us um, just within you know a few million light years for example, um, to ask these same sorts of questions, because we don't see every type of galaxy that we know of in our local group of galaxies, but we do see enough variation to still address some of these questions.
0: No, and, and I can imagine there are two very good reasons you want to do this. The first is, like you said, uh, they're close by. So when you have galaxies that are very close by, even outside of the Milky Way, galaxies in the local group range from, you know, 100 or 200,000 light years away to maybe to maybe two, three, four million light years away, but no farther than that. So with our powerful observatories, we can do things like resolve individual stars within those galaxies. We can do things like identify different stellar populations that formed recently or are forming right now or that formed a billion years ago or that formed 10 or 11 or 12 or even 13 billion years ago. Um, You can identify gas streams. You can identify evolved stellar populations. So it's not like you just get this one snapshot where you're seeing everything as it is right now yeah you are getting that but but when you're looking at something in as gory a detail as you can get with the local group i also imagine that you can you can really reconstruct these details of oh, what what happened to a precursor galaxy that got destroyed or tidally stripped if you can still see the gas and stellar streams arising from it? So, So in the local group, yeah, you have a variety of objects, but even within those objects, you have a variety of populations of objects that you can study that can help shed light on, hey, how did these objects grow up? And what does that tell us for the I guess, assembly history of the universe.
1: Yes, that's exactly correct. Um, And that's the reason why I focus on studying the local group. We can use the most detailed techniques that we have available in astronomy in terms of studying things like galaxies and stellar populations uh, within this volume. Um, Where in contrast, right, when you're working in the regime of really, really large samples, which is equally valuable, and highly complementary. When you're looking at a single galaxy, you're, you're really looking at the galaxy as a whole. Um, so for example, if you're trying to look at the light of a galaxy, um, you know, so it, it's spectrum, you're, you're looking at it from an aggregate of the all stellar populations in the galaxy at once. So you don't get that time resolution, those snapshots, that you're discussing. Um, so in contrast, in the local group, um, you get all that detail, and there's enough difference here to make it interesting. So one of the galaxies that I focus on studying is the Andromeda galaxy. And the reason that I'm so interested in it is because it has a fairly different history from the Milky Way as far as i can tell or we can tell um so you mentioned earlier that you know the initial pictures that mergers are important early in a galaxy's evolution but later um gas that is in falling um becomes more important in driving its evolution or just internal processes within the galaxy but one of the most interesting things about andromeda is that it seems to have experienced a significant merger Um, just in the last few billion years, right? Which sort of goes against this conventional picture of of how galaxies form. And this raises a broader question, actually, of how common is it for galaxies of this type, you know, that have similar structure, have similar mass to Andromeda, for example, to have experienced these kinds of events. In contrast to the Milky Way, which conforms more to um, the picture you know, that we were just discussing.
0: Yeah, so I I know that if we look at the Milky Ways history, we we know we had a few uh, mergers that happened in our past, um, because one of the things we can look at is uh, I learned this recently, is we can look at the globular clusters that we have in the Milky Way's halo, and there are something like around 150 of them or so. Uh, it turns out that many of them appear to have formed separate from the Milky Way in in a galaxy that was brought in and merged with us some time ago. And I believe there were something like five Major mergers in the Milky Way's history, but they were all many billions of years ago. I think the the most recent one that was even a few percent of the Milky Way's mass might have occurred something like six to eight billion years ago, and most of them, like the Gaia Enceladus merger or the Kraken merger, uh, happened more like 11 billion years ago. So we're really talking about things that happened a long, long, long time ago as far as major major mergers go, but we know that there's one that we're headed for in the future. Sometime over the next four to seven billion years, We believe that the Milky Way and Andromeda, which are the local group's two largest galaxies, we see them moving towards each other right now, and we believe that you know four to seven billion years from now, this merger is going to take place. Uh, Will we become a spiral galaxy? Will we become an elliptical galaxy? How many new stars are going to form? How much of our gas are we going to expel? What are we going to evolve into? I, I think that's still an open question, But when we look at Andromeda, uh, like you were saying, uh, its merger history isn't just like the Milky Ways. There's something going on in Andromeda that tells us we think it had one of these more major mergers much more recently than the Milky Way did. Uh, How did we figure that out?
1: So one way that we can figure that out is by looking at the... What we would call the tidal features that are present around Andromeda. Um, so these are the remnants of the galaxy or multiple galaxies, potentially, if there were smaller mergers, which there likely were, um, that uh, was destroyed by the, you know, gravitational pull of Andromeda. And another way we we actually suspect this is actually looking at the properties of Andromeda's disc um so that's another thing that's interesting about mergers is that um you know it's, it's not like these two galaxies just pass like the stars pass through one another and nothing happens you know there is a lot of interaction that's occurring in terms of gas from you know the external galaxy that is incoming um being funneled into the main galaxy which in this case would be andromeda there is star formation that's occurring. Um, the outskirts of the galaxy are being disturbed, in addition to um, the central regions of the galaxy in the disk. So, basically, in terms of the the tidal features, you know, there's this large system of features that's very visible when you look at the galaxy. They were first discovered in the early two thousands as part of well, there was a precursor survey, but really. Much of the work comes from the Pan-Andromeda Archaeological Survey, which is just an imaging survey of the galaxy looking at evolved giant stars. Um, you can see this huge stream in the southern half of the galaxy called the, the Giant Stellar Stream. Um, and there's also these other structures that look almost like fans that you can see in the outskirts of galaxies. And you can actually perform simulations of this event to get a sense of the mass of the galaxy involved in the merger with andromeda um we know it has to have been at least as massive as something like uh the large magellanic cloud or m33 for example so these are dwarf galaxies but they are um, fairly massive dwarf galaxies um have about you know 1 billion times the mass of the sun contained within them. And M33 in particular, you know, has this beautiful spiral structure. So uh, that's one way that we know um, that something really significant must have happened within the last few billion years, but it could have been more massive than even that.
0: So one of the things this brings up for me is I know that, uh, you know, five five to ten years ago, there was this ongoing survey uh, called FAT, the Panchromatic Hubble Andromeda Treasury, and they they actually imaged in gory detail with the Hubble Space Telescope uh, about half of the galactic disk in andromeda so i would imagine if you had these major mergers and i know you you describe the large magellanic cloud and m33 the triangulum galaxy as these dwarf rinky dink galaxies but they're those are actually the fourth and third respectively largest galaxies in the local group the fourth and third most massive galaxies behind Andromeda and the Milky Way. So you're really saying like, look, there was a third most massive galaxy in the local group previously. And just a few billion years ago, it merged with Andromeda. And so you get a whole slew of features that that arose from that. You get these tidal streams, you get these stellar streams, you get these gravitational effects of the merger that, that still linger today. But you also, because you, you had a physical merger happening, is you had a disruption of the gas within Andromeda's disk itself, and as far as I know, that should trigger a new wave of star formation. So I would imagine if you could do things like compare what do we see in Andromeda's disk versus what do we see outside of the disk versus what do we see in the galactic halo, Uh, That especially by comparing what you observe with what different simulations predict you should see in certain cases, that you could actually reconstruct uh, a large number of properties of the predecessor galaxy that has since merged with Andromeda.
1: Yes, uh, that's exactly correct. So you mentioned the FAT survey, which is great that you bring it up, because this really presented, the survey was one of the first um, indications that the disk of Andromeda was so disturbed, and it imaged roughly one-third of the disk. Um, it is the northeastern half, but the thing is, it's um, missing some of the inner regions a little bit, because um, that's that's just because of, of crowding, uh, stellar crowding, and the like. Um, but yeah, what they en- ended up Finding was basically exactly this burst of star formation, um, which should exist if this is something that happened, right? And they found that it was ubiquitous. Um, so, across the entire survey footprint in the northeastern part of the disk. And there have been, um, you know, principal investigator led efforts, so smaller scale efforts using the Hubble Space Telescope to look at uh, different regions of Andromeda, including um, a few pointings at the southwestern side of the disk that also found indications of this uh, burst of star formation. So, so what that means is that as far as we know, it appears to have been truly global. So that raises the question of, of what could have caused this event. And from the amount of stars that were inferred to form in this event which is something you know you can learn because you have access to such detailed information about individual stars of varying types within the disk you can ask what was the mass the minimum required mass of the interacting galaxy to trigger this burst of star formation and it needs to be at least you know around 20% of the mass of andromeda at the time when this interaction was occurring, you know, presumably a few billion years ago, um, which is significantly massive, Uh, like you said, would have been the third most massive galaxy in the local group, right? And this galaxy is is no longer intact. Um, But again, through through studying the disk, and what we believe to be, you know, it's remnants in the form of the giant cellar stream, and these uh, shell features, you know, we can learn more about its properties um, and its impact on the evolution of a galaxy that's very much like the Milky Way.
0: Wow, that's really exciting. I have so many follow up questions and I'm gonna ask them right after giving a mention and a shout out to our sponsor. Uh, Today's episode is brought to you in part by Avenues Online, which is the virtual campus of Avenues the World School. Avenues Online is an accredited, tier one private school designed for students from toddler through 12th grade who want to pursue a world-class education freed from the constraints of a physical school. Learn alongside peers living on six continents in more than 20 countries with a global faculty leading the way. Learn more at avenues.org slash SWAB and we'll have a link in the show notes for you there. So thank you to our sponsor and now Back to the program, Ivana, I want to know um, when you talk about this, first off, 20%, at least 20% the mass of Andromeda, means this is more massive than any merger we believe happened in the entire history of the Milky Way. So in our whole galaxy's history, we've never merged with a galaxy that was at least a fifth as massive as our own at the time. So this is really falling into that category of a major merger. And the second thing that I'm really excited about is you talked about global star formation. So normally in a spiral galaxy, like like we see in the Milky Way, you'll have a few star forming regions isolated in it. Like maybe they're occurring in the disk maybe they're occurring in the spiral arms themselves where the matter is densest uh, and you get a few regions where new stars are forming we have one nearby in the orion nebula we have a few others that are a little further away like the omega nebula or the eagle nebula and we have some close to the galactic center but if we want to see a galaxy where the entire galaxy is forming stars, the closest one I know of is called Messier 82, the Cigar Galaxy. And the reason that one is forming stars all throughout it, all over the galaxy, is because it is in the process of merging with its larger, more massive neighbor, Messier 81, or Bode's galaxy, that... that As these galaxies get very close to each other, their gravitational pull on each other creates these tidal forces that causes gas to collapse and contract and form stars. It triggers a new burst of star formation. It's wild to think that something could actually have done that to Andromeda, the largest galaxy in our local group, and that it did it only... Uh, I believe it's somewhere between two and four billion years ago this is relatively recent and and an incredibly large merger uh was was it a surprise when you learned that the data was indicating that something like this occurred relatively recently
1: uh yeah so it, it was somewhat of a surprise for the community because most of the thinking you know prior to really just the last few years is when we realized that that this was the more likely picture, most people thought that it was a smaller merger, you know, more uh, similar, perhaps to um, what would happen if say the the large Magellanic Cloud merged with the Milky Way as it will do, um, you know, in, in the not so distant future on cosmological timescales, right. Um so you know we thought it was you know perhaps just a a spheroidal dwarf galaxy and that i mean you know one of these blobby dwarf galaxies that we see around us in the local group that had merged to just create the the tidal features that we see but really did not interact substantially with um the disk of the galaxy um and then you know it was proposed it's like oh maybe this was a, a not a blobby dwarf galaxy, but a dwarf galaxy that actually had a spiral disk of stars. Um, but that, although that scenario was good at explaining, again, the things that we observed in the outskirts of the galaxy, it, it really didn't bring all of the things that we know about Andromeda together in the same way that this major merger picture does. And this also includes things like... Potentially, you know, the globular cluster system that we see in Andromeda. Um, by the way, Andromeda has, like, a factor of three more globular clusters than the Milky Way does, many of which were likely brought in, right, by other galaxies. Um, but we do see some interesting, uh, distinct populations within them that perhaps suggest that, you know, there were two uh, major or distinct epochs of, of mergers within Andromeda. So, yeah, in that sense, it, it was a little shocking because, again, the, the picture had been that um, going back to, say, you know, the, the 2000s, that also, like, how can a disk actually survive an event like this without being fully disrupted? You know, at the time, we didn't have simulations of galaxy formation that, could keep the disk intact when you had, like, something so massive coming in. Um, We've gotten better at that. And and by we, I mean the community. I'm an observational uh, astrophysicist, so I don't do this type of thing myself. Um, So now we know that the disk can survive, but the questions that we're asking today in this sense is, um, you know, how exactly do they survive? Um... How common are these events? If these types of things have happened, what are the signatures of them? What are the, What's the evidence? Um, one piece of evidence would be these global bursts of star formation. Another one would be that, right, it's not just the gas in the disk that's affected, it's the stars that were already present. Um, so there, these mergers change the motion of those stars, right? And a related question is, is how do these disks if they are disrupted you know they actually can end up reforming i think that's a summary of of sort of the change that
0: has resulted from this. That was wonderful. I mean, thank you for such a comprehensive overview because this is a really complicated uh, story. You know, if you if you had asked me what I was learning when I was in grad school, and for full disclosure with the audience, uh, I was in grad school from 01 to 06, so we're, we're talking some time ago. Uh, the consensus picture was that if you had two comparably mass spiral galaxies converging together that the following things would happen. Number one, the disks of both galaxies would be destroyed. Number two, you would have a global star formation episode that was strong enough to expel pretty much all of the star-forming material, i.e. the gas that's used to form stars, to expel whatever doesn't form stars completely out of the galaxy. Uh, And then you would wind up with this, what we call a red and dead elliptical galaxy thereafter. After with no remnant disk at all. And over the past 20 years, one of the things we've learned is none of those things are necessarily true. Uh, so even if you just look at the Andromeda example, yeah, we had a global episode of star formation pretty recently in terms of cosmic time, and we look at it now, and what do we see? Well, guess what? It still has a disk that's relatively intact, which means either it wasn't very disrupted or any disruptions that happened reformed over time. What else? Well, we did have a global burst of star formation, but it is still a gas-rich galaxy. That gas didn't get expelled. And there are tracers, you can even see them visually, of how stars and gas were ripped out and what sort of streams and paths they made. But one of the things that I'm really curious about is, it isn't just these visual signals that we can use to help reconstruct the history of the galaxy. There are also these more uh, esoteric imprints that you might not think to look for immediately, like how chemically enriched various parts of the galaxy are and various populations within this galaxy are. You know, one of the things we talked about, about why it's so advantageous to study nearby objects like we have in the local group is you're not just looking at the aggregate population of what's out there. You know, when you look at a distant galaxy, you suffer from a type of bias that we call Malmquist bias, which means you're seeing the brightest, most extreme examples of what's out there. If I'm looking at a distant galaxy, and it has a population of bright, young, blue stars, and it also has a population of faint, old, red stars. I have to be very, very careful and lucky, honestly, if I wanna tease that second, fainter, less dominant population, out of the bright one that's dominating it. But this is not true in the local group. In the local group, we can focus on regions so narrowly that we could say, oh no, I know there are these bright young stars, but look at this old population. Look at this evolved set of stars. I can even sometimes say, look at this one star in particular and what I can learn from it. Um, and so I know this is something you've researched when you look for the signals of chemical enrichment or in, in simpler terms, when you look at, okay, the sun is made out of hydrogen, helium, and other stuff, right? All the other stuff combined is maybe only one to 2%, the mass of the sun, but that one to 2% is really important. And when I look at other stars or other regions of a distant galaxy, I can see, oh, uh, they have 100% of the elements that the sun has that aren't hydrogen or helium, or 10%, or 1%, or 0.1%, right? I can hone in on how enriched are these regions. And apparently that can teach me something about how these galaxies grew up too, can't they?
1: Yes, uh, that's, that's certainly the case. And that is one of um, my areas of, of technical expertise is, is making these types of measurements of the chemical composition of individual stars within the local group. And this is something uh, that, that can be challenging. Um, so it's, it's easier in the Milky Way for stars that are closer to us, but I specialize in doing this in galaxies that are further closer to the edge of the local group such as in Andromeda or in dwarf galaxies that are at the edge of the local group. Um, but the reason that even though this is so hard, it's so worth doing is because they truly encode information about the history of a galaxy's assembly over cosmic time. And the reason for this is that individual stars, um, are imprinted with the chemical signature, um, of the, uh, you know, gas clouds or interstellar medium from which they were born within a galaxy, right? So if a star was born 10 billion years ago, it provides a fossil record of the conditions within a galaxy 10 billion years ago. And this is true when you're looking at certain heavy elements. Um, you know, their stellar atmospheres are a whole nother thing. There are a lot of different uh, processes that go on in them that can change... Um, the amount of a certain element in the atmosphere, but the elements I look at are ones that remain um, basically unchanged over cosmic time, right? So if I'm looking at something like iron in a star, for example, I know that that iron has been there for the entire star's lifetime since it was born. Um, And that's useful, again, for providing this fossil record that hasn't been influenced by again, processes within the stellar atmosphere. It's, it's really useful as a tracer in that sense. So I'll give a few examples. In the Milky Way, for example, this is where we have the most detailed information concerning the chemical composition of stars. You know, if you combine the chemical composition with the motions of stars, so I'm talking about their velocities, for example, recently, that's how we discovered the, you know, Gaia and merger event which um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Ethan, which was the last significant merger of the Milky Way that occurred 10 billion years ago. You, know, you can see it as this um, distinct feature in terms of the motions of the stars, but you can also see that it's distinct in terms of its chemical composition compared to, for example, the stellar disc of the Milky Way or other structures um, in the outskirts of the Milky Way as well. Um, and it, it's useful for, say, in the case of Andromeda, one of the other reasons we know that the tidal features um, around the galaxy must have originated from a fairly massive galaxy is that they are rich in heavy elements. And and by that, I mean, again, normally we look at iron because that's a good approximate tracer of the total heavy element content of a star. So all these elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. Um, And there's actually quite a tight um, relationship between the mass of a galaxy, and the heavy element content of its stars, right? Because more massive galaxies, larger galaxies are better at retaining their gas when you have things like, you know, bursts of star formation occur, for example. And so they're better at converting that gas into stars and end up more metal rich over time. That's one way they're useful, and they're also useful, um, which I alluded to in, in the case of the Milky Way, right? Say if you had one merger event occur, you know, 10 billion years ago, and then you had another merger event occur a few billion years later, um, those should be distinct in terms of when you look at the heavy element content of the stars
0: no that makes that makes absolute sense right because when you form stars 10 billion years ago you're forming stars out of the material as it was 10 billion years ago presumably in the 10 billion years that have occurred since or whatever time that occurred since until the next burst of star formation um you have had stars living and dying and recycling their contents and throwing them back into the interstellar medium. So you're going to have a greater enrichment even in that same region of the galaxy when you form stars later versus when you form them earlier. So it is like you're getting a series of populations uh, that have different chemical abundances within them. Is that is that right?
1: Yes, that's exactly um, the picture that we're describing here.
0: Well, that's great. let me let me also ask because this is something I'm curious about and maybe you can actually tell me the answer. I know that in general, Larger, more massive galaxies are more chemically enriched, have a greater fraction of these heavy elements like iron than smaller, lower-mass galaxies. Part of that is, like you said, because they're better at holding on to that star-forming material, right? More mass, more gravity, which means when you have a supernova go off or you have strong winds, either from your central black hole or from bursts of star formation, uh, if the escape velocity... For this material within your galaxy is greater because you have more mass within the galaxy, then it's easier for the galaxy to hold on to that material. And if you're lower in mass, it's easier for that material to get blown away. When we look at, you know, a general galaxy, I I know this has been done for the Milky Way, you can identify, okay, you have a central galactic bulge, you have a disk, and the closer to the center of the galaxy you are in the disk, and also the closer to the center of the disk you are, the more enriched in general your elements are gonna be, and the further out of the galactic plane you go, and the farther away from the center of the galaxy you go, the less enriched you're gonna be. Can you look at the stars that have formed in Andromeda, including the stars you find along these tidal streams that are evidence of where this merger took place, and can you identify, oh, there are distinct populations between the stars that formed from the more massive Andromeda galaxy's gas and the star that formed for the less massive, or sorry, the stars that formed from the less massive now cannibalized smaller galaxy um, and its less enriched gas. Have have there been multiple populations you've been able to identify and say, oh, this is formed from Andromeda, but this is not?
1: Um, yes, we we can do that in Andromeda, and that that's something you know that I've I've done in in my own research and. And one of the things that I've um, really contributed to the field is uh, making that a little bit more uh, possible, you know, a little bit more accessible in terms of of the chemical uh, composition. So I made um, the first measurement of, you know, the alpha element content in, or some of the first measurements. really. There were only four, I should I'd say, when I when I started this work, and I expanded it to the sample for over 200 individual stars in Andromeda, and you know we're we're working on increasing this sample size to be larger and larger and get more and more information. And I should mention that the alpha elements are uh, uh, just elements that that formed from something called you know the triple alpha process, basically things like. Um, magnesium, calcium, silicon, etc. Not so important, but <laughs> the point. The important point here is that we're able to get more detailed information. If-
0: so when you talk about these these alpha elements, what you're really saying is, look, you get a sun-like star, and you're going to form. Fuse hydrogen into helium right you're going to start with protons you've got a proton proton chain and that will build you up towards helium four and that's great that's what goes on in all what we call main sequence stars in all stars that have ignited nuclear fusion in their core they fuse hydrogen into helium and that's true of all stars from the tiny red low mass m dwarf stars to the supergiant blue o stars that only live for a million or two years before they go supernova Um, but then if your star is massive enough after it's burned through all of its hydrogen uh Helium will start fusing in the core, and the Sun will do this someday, too. So you can't fuse two helium elements together, because if you do, you're going to wind up with beryllium-8, which has a wonderfully long lifetime of like 10 to the minus 17 seconds. It, it does not live long enough, but if it lives long enough that you can get a third element in there, that if you can get a third helium atom in there, which we also call an alpha particle because it has two protons, two neutrons, and it's one of the first radioactive decays we've ever discovered is when you have a massive nucleus, it can spit out, An alpha particle. Um, Well, if you add an alpha particle, if you add three of them together, you can turn helium into carbon. And then you throw an extra alpha in there, uh, and carbon can become oxygen. And you throw an extra alpha particle into oxygen, and it can become neon. And you can work your way up the periodic table two elements at a time. And sure enough, we find that these even numbered elements going all the way up, you know, magnesium to silicon sulfur and then that fuses into iron. Uh, these what you call alpha elements are are really important in in building up, you know, the contents of massive stars and later on, for enriching the universe. So even though it might be difficult to detect some of these things, uh, iron appears to be one that we can pull out. If you if you can find and measure an iron line uh, from usually I believe it's an absorption feature, uh, that's not something that's gonna substantially change over the lifetime of a star. So if you can measure its iron content, that's a pretty good tracer of not only how much heavy elements are in it, but how enriched has this been? Has this material it formed from been over the history of this galaxy?
1: Uh, yes, that's correct. And alpha elements like uh, magnesium, calcium, and silicon, which we can measure um, even in you know individual stars and in more distant galaxies in the local group, are are really Useful in the galaxy assembly picture because it provides us this additional dimension of of looking at distinct stellar populations. So I digress somewhat and I'm trying to convey what an alpha element is, but really the importance of it is in this context of right identifying these uh, stellar populations within other galaxies. Right. So iron, right, is is just one dimension, Um, but when we look at iron and the alpha elements together, specifically the ratio of alpha elements relative to iron. And all of this is always relative to the sun because we need a benchmark um, for these types of measurements versus uh, the ratio of iron relative to hydrogen. Um, This sort of chemical space is really diagnostic of a galaxy's evolutionary history. And when you look at something like say a dwarf galaxy in this space, it looks very different from the Milky Way. So when you're looking within the Milky Way, you know, or within Andromeda, if you just measure the iron content and alpha element content for a bunch of individual stars, and you start to see different clustering occurring, that's gonna be evidence of these distinct stellar populations. Um, So we can do that in Andromeda, You know, in principle, we could do it in these dwarf galaxies. But the thing is, they don't tend to contain as much variation in this space, especially when we're talking about the blobby ones. I mean, they have more metal horn and more uh, metal enriched stars. Um, But you're not going to see, um, say, separate sequences in this space the same way that you may see when you're looking um, within the Milky Way or Andromeda. And going back to um, looking at different parts of the galaxies that are more metal enhanced or metal poor, um, we see that in the Milky Way, as you described, Ethan, but we we see the same general trends in Andromeda as well. You know, so we know that the central bulge is much more metal enriched. Um, We see this gradient that you described where the um, inner regions of the disk are more metal rich than the outer region of the disk. Although the absolute change in Andromeda, and by that I mean like the change in the heavy element content as a function of distance is is weaker than in the Milky Way.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Do we do we have an idea why that might be why the Milky Way appears to go from metal rich to metal poor much more steeply? as a function of distance than it does in Andromeda?
1: Yeah, so, so part of it may be only that the Milky Way's disk is actually much, um, it's smaller than Andromeda. So one thing you might wanna consider is actually scaling for the size of the disk. Um, but even when you do that though, Andromeda's uh, changes at a much more gradual rate than the Milky Way. Andromeda's disk is much, much larger as as far as we can tell. Um, So the problem is though, we don't have a nice external view of the Milky Way's disk because we're located within it as we do uh, for Andromeda. But one reason we think that it's weaker and Andromeda is actually a consequence of um, its history of uh, more violent mergers, mergers occurring at later times. So, so you can have um, basically some um, merger-driven mixing that's occurring of, of stellar population. So there's, there's normally some amount of mixing within the disk of the galaxy. We call this radial migration, where you have stars that were born at one radius, um, end up you know, gradually moving to a different radius within the disk if you sort of think of it as a two-dimensional pancake um but if if you have these um interactions occurring with external galaxies right it's it's just going to disturb the disk even further so if you had a stronger um gradient in the heavy element content in the disk that's something that could be washed out over time
0: oh i see so the very fact that andromeda has had a major merger relatively recently could have helped uh you know, sort of like if you were to take a bunch of uh, grains of sand of different sizes and you'd put them in a jar, if you just sat there with the jar and you tap, 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 tap the jar, uh, it would settle out so that you would get... uh you would get like, you know, okay, the smaller things will sink to the bottom and the larger things would rise to the top. Um, and that's sort of what you'd expect. But then if you took it and you shook it up a bunch, it would become more uniform again. Is that, is that kind of what happens in Andromeda because of this major merger? Is, do we think that this was sort of a, a, some sort of equalizer that helped smooth things out by, by perturbing the disk so significantly?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's an appropriate analogy. Um, so this, this is another you know, piece of evidence that could be in favor of this major merger picture. Um, it's a different thing, though, to show definitively that these things are connected. That would require detailed simulations that look at the heavy element content of uh, the disk of a galaxy like Andromeda. Um, but those simulations actually just largely don't exist. So because, again, we're talking about this sort of classical picture where you have most of the mergers occurring early in the history of the galaxy, like the Milky Way or Andromeda, there hasn't been a ton of work simulation-wise that's focusing on um, such a violent event occurring at late times. In you know, And by late times, I mean recently, the last few billion years, in the history of... Um, a spiral galaxy um, as massive as the Milky Way or M31. So, you know, containing like a hundred billion stars or so. Um,
0: No, that's, that's, those are big galaxies. Like the Milky Way and Andromeda, like we're not, we're not exceptionally big or bright, but for, but for galaxies that we find in the late time universe, these are, these are pretty typical examples of the largest types of galaxies that you'll find in a typical uh, group of galaxies that's approximately our size. You don't you don't generally find them much bigger than than us or our big sister.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly.
0: So one of the things that I've uh, noticed is uh, every once in a while you'll get a study that comes out that says like oh the Milky Way is almost as big as Andromeda and I I really think all of those studies uh, are missing something because. Andromeda is almost double the extent in physical size of its disc versus the Milky Way's disc. It has more mass, it has more stars, uh, it covers a larger spatial extent. And one of the things that jumps out as me as a big difference, you mentioned that Andromeda has roughly triple the number, number of globular clusters that the Milky Way has. But I've always been impressed by the fact that Andromeda's supermassive black hole at its center is something like 20 times the mass of the black hole Sagittarius A-star at the center of the Milky Way. Is it is it possible or likely that, that having a larger supermassive black hole at its center... Uh, changes the star formation history of Andromeda relative to the Milky Way?
1: Yeah, that's something that I think would be possible, although this relates to the question of, I guess, active galactic nuclei. You know, so the, you know, black holes go through various stages in their lifetimes, but this is one in which, you know, they're more actively consuming matter and then uh, ejecting material in the form of... Of, of jets, so you know, they're they're highly energetic objects that can certainly influence the amount of star formation occurring within a galaxy and its star formation history. But the majority of modern day galaxy simulations, which is how we sort of test these questions, um, right, because we can't ex- ex- perform experiments out in space, I, I think are, are missing this ingredient. Um, so i'm not sure that i know the answer to that question precisely because it's a fairly you know active area of, of research but i think it could have an effect um in the case of andromeda specifically um i don't know although the fact that it has such a more massive black hole um certainly indicates that it's more massive than the milky way because we know there's a relation between these two things And i'd just like to mention that um Measuring the total mass of the galaxy is not straightforward. Um, these are, are difficult measurements to make. Um, we we know Andromeda is more massive than the Milky Way, but the extent to which it's more massive, I, I think, is is what is generally debated. You know, is it a factor of, of two times more massive, for example? You know, or is it smaller than that? But um, in terms of Andromeda, I think in recent years, mass estimates have been converging more toward, you know, similar values, roughly, you know, a couple to at most a few times 10 to the 12 solar masses, um, meaning, you know, the mass of the sun in this case. But for the Milky Way, I think mass measurements are actually more challenging than Andromeda, because again, this goes back to the limitation of being located within the
0: galaxy. Um. Yeah, I mean, if we if we had the ability to like float a few thousand light years above the Milky Way or below the Milky Way, you know, so we were out of the plane of the Milky Way, then we'd actually be able to see it. I've always been shocked at how good our images of other galaxies are compared to our reconstruction of what the Milky Way looks like. It's sort of the the analogy I like to use is that... Uh, How would you know what your own eye color was if you either didn't have cameras, didn't have reflective surfaces, or didn't have other people to observe you? If you didn't have any of those pieces of information, you could see what everyone else's eye color was, but you'd never be able to see your own. And I think that's kind of the situation we're stuck in with the Milky Way, is we want to know how do other things compare to us, and yet our own uncertainty about what the Milky Way is, is huge compared to our relatively low uncertainties about what other objects are.
1: Yes, that's that's a good analogy. I haven't heard the eye color one yet, but I like it. Um, one thing I usually think of in terms of analogies is, you know, imagine that you had a house that you lived in, but you could never leave. So you can go and walk to the window and look at other houses in your neighborhood and see what they look like. And it's probably reasonable to assume that your own house looks pretty similar, um, but you actually don't know that. And it's impossible for you to take a step outside and actually confirm that to be true but you know you can look and say okay that house looks like a similar size to mine you know so maybe it looks like that one compared to maybe that smaller house across the street which in this analogy would be more like a dwarf galaxy
0: oh interesting i like this analogy a lot because it uh you know from within the milky way if you look at the nearby galaxies to us um really Andromeda is probably the closest analog uh, because the others are so much smaller and lower in mass and uh, and have such different histories to to our own uh, but Andromeda, just because it's the most like us in our own local group doesn't mean that it's actually very like us at all. So that's kind of interesting the houses analogy because what what would you do if like you know you, you know you don't live in the same house as the peasants, but you also don't live in the same house as the king. Uh, how, how do you really know what your house is like?
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. And it's possible that maybe you spent a lot of time initially studying your own house and assumed that every other house was like yours um, that had a similar size, which has been historically the problem in terms of the Milky Way, right? We know so much more about the Milky Way than any other galaxy, and with good reason. We can study it in such an exquisite level of detail. But the reason that it's, it's really valuable to study... You know, the dwarf galaxies and the local group in detail and Andromeda in such a high level of detail is to challenge these assumptions of galaxy formation that we have um, based on the Milky Way and to confirm the knowledge that we have, um, you know, by, by looking for similar evidence in other galaxies. You know, one example of this, at least in my field, is. For example, when you look at the outskirts of the Milky Way, um, what we call the stellar halo, right, which is this extended stellar structure around the Milky Way that's composed of, you know, stars on um, generally pretty, like, eccentric and disordered orbits compared to something like the disk. People were surprised when they noticed that the stellar halo had different chemical composition than the dwarf galaxies in the local group. And this is something that happened in the early uh, 2000s. So like, you know, 2001 to 2004. And it it was like a really big deal at first because based on this picture of, you know, merger-driven galaxy formation, people thought that, okay, the stellar halo is made of dwarf galaxies, so its chemical composition should be the same as dwarf galaxies, but it was actually different. So that doesn't mean it's not made of dwarf galaxies. It just means that the dwarf galaxies that were destroyed in the past are different from the ones that we see today. Um, and this is something that we learned from the Milky Way, but it's actually not something that we were able to confirm is the case for other galaxies until recently. And, and this is um, specifically one of the things that my collaborators and I did in Andromeda. You know, we confirmed that the chemical composition of its stellar halo is uh, similarly distinct from its
0: own dwarf galaxy. No, and and that's really interesting because for, I would say for two reasons. One is because th- this is really like you're you're just giving another example of the history of astronomy of how we have. Uh, I guess abused what we call the Copernican principle where we sort of assume that we're nothing special so that everything else that's out there should be like like the closest examples are. So when we first started observing other stars, we assumed that they were all pretty much like the sun. And guess what? No, no, they're not. In fact, the sun is probably brighter and more massive than 95% of stars that are out there. And most stars are smaller, redder, cooler, and longer lived than the sun. When we looked at galaxies and we were measuring the light coming from other galaxies we assumed that the average star in the galaxy would have the same brightness to mass ratio as the sun. And guess what? Even though the average star is less massive and less bright than our sun, the average light coming from a distant galaxy has about three times the light to mass ratio as our sun. So it's actually dominated by brighter more massive and rarer stars than what we find in our own backyard. So it's a little surprising that, you know, oh, well, we thought that what's in the halo and the dwarf galaxies would match up. But guess what? When we looked in detail, we found that they don't. I feel like this is just just another example of, you know, you made an assumption without the necessary evidence And now that you have the necessary evidence and you actually learn the answer, guess what? Your naive guess, your naive assumption turned out not to pan out, turned out not to match the data.
1: Yes, exactly. And I like to, you know, sometimes when I I think about my own work in the context of of the field, I, I like to think about this, you know, historical perspective of the things that really were revolutionary and. And um, these perspective shifts, as you may call them, right? Because astronomy is simultaneously a very ancient field, since people have been looking at the stars for, you know, as long as we've had art or even beforehand in all likelihood. Um, But it's really in only the last um, 50 to 60 years or so that we have uh, learned much of What we know about astronomy and galaxy formation, particularly regarding, you know, the details of of galaxy formation. Um, And right. It wasn't until, you know, they were debating back in like the 20s, whether or not there were even other galaxies in the
0: universe. Well, that's right. This is this is actually the 100th anniversary of when that critical evidence came in to say, "Oh, those spirals and ellipticals you see in the sky, they are galaxies unto themselves, not components of the Milky Way." Like we didn't learn that till 100 years ago. And so, when you think about how simple that fact seems to be and how much we take that for granted and how how we're trying to figure out the number of galaxies in the universe and we're up in the trillions or tens of trillions now. Um, wow, a hundred years ago, we finally got evidence that the Milky Way wasn't the full extent of the universe. That's that's really impressive to think about how far we've come. So it's, it's perhaps not a wonder that we don't know it all yet and maybe further evidence that that you and other cutting-edge astronomers should cut yourself a little bit of slack for some of the assumptions you make that turn out to be wrong.
1: Uh, Yes, exactly. And the important thing that defines a scientist, in my opinion, is is not focusing on the fact that you were wrong or that you had these, what turn out to be naive assumptions, but the ability to change your mind in the face of new evidence.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's... That's exactly as you say, that's, that's the best way to be wrong, is when you're wrong in a way that, oh, I'm wrong because we knew there were things that happened and I guessed that this one would be the important effect or the dominant effect or the way it turned out. But then when we got the evidence, we learned it was this way and, and now we know that instead. Like that's, that's really a good way to be wrong.
1: Exactly, and I, I have a couple more fun examples of ways in which we were wrong or didn't know the full picture that re- you know relate to my area of research. Oh, please regarding share how galaxies assemble. So one of my favorites was we didn't know that galaxy mergers were so important in driving galaxy formation really until basically the '60s. So there used to be something basically called a monolithic collapse model where the picture was you know you had a dark matter halo basically you know a gravitational potential in which the galaxy was forming you know you had gas that was condensing um into the center of this potential well and you would end up with something that was the disk and then in terms of the stellar halo right you just had this other component of gas that was collapsing you know, more gradually to form stars and creating a spherical component. Um, but now we know that's not how stellar halos appear to form. Um, you know, they realized um, that there are these distinct stellar populations right, that are not consistent with this gradual collapse that's occurring You know fairly early on in a galaxy's history. Um, And from recent large-scale surveys of the Milky Way, the evidence points to the fact that most of the stellar halo is entirely accreted, entirely, almost entirely material from external galaxies. Um, And again, this is just for the Milky Way, right? So now one of the major questions is, is this true for other galaxies like Andromeda? Um, But my point is here, though, that's a very different picture from what was originally conceived of in terms of explaining this, you know, spheroidal extended uh, stellar structure that we noticed around the Milky Way. Um, so once we established, they're like, okay, mergers are important. We actually didn't have evidence that these things were happening in other galaxies until the nineties, basically. Um, and Andromeda has played a very important role role in defining our understanding of galaxy formation you know over the last um, 50 to 60 years and in one way is that the discovery of the giant stellar stream around andromeda was basically the first concrete piece of evidence that other galaxies experience merger events so that really confirmed what people were beginning to suspect and in that confirmation again you know sort of revolutionized um, our idea of galaxy assembly.
0: No, and I I love that way you told that story because one of the things it it really makes me think about is that, hey, um, when you make an assumption about the way the universe works, uh, the assumption you make about, oh, this is what happens, this is how it happens, that leads you to ask questions that like, okay, Uh, What do we want to observe? What do we want to look at? What do we want to test for? Um, And when that picture changes, all of a sudden the questions that you realize are important to ask, that changes too. Um, So, you know, we wouldn't have thought maybe 60, 70 years ago to look at uh, these nearby galaxies and study their halos and study their satellites and see are they the same or different, we would have made assumptions that like, oh yeah, they're going to be the same in this way, in this way, in this way, so why bother studying them? And now that you do study them, you find, oh, well, I studied them because I learned it would be important to study them, and now that I can and I do, here's what I found. So let me let me ask you for the big reveal. You know we know Andromeda has some satellites. In in particular, uh, you can see visually uh, two of its satellites are these dwarf spheroidal galaxies that are are pretty substantial. They're definitely two of the 10 largest galaxies in the local group by mass. Um, So when you look at them and you look at what's going on in Andromeda's halo, what are the differences that you see? I know in particular that you've noticed uh, some chemical differences between them, and, and what does that teach us?
1: So many of the more massive satellite galaxies around Andromeda have been studied um, this includes M33, the Triangulum Galaxy, you know, NGC 205, and then NGC 147 and 185. These are um, basically the dwarf elliptical galaxies that show signs of tidal interaction. And then there's uh, M32, the compact dwarf elliptical, which I should mention is a very rare uh, object. You know, it's the only such object that we know of in the local group and, you know, perhaps the local universe. So that's something that I would have to double check. Um, And then there's this whole plethora of galaxies that just have names like Andromeda 1, 3, etc., you know, that were named basically in discovery order. Um, And by the way, not all of those galaxies that are called Andromeda 1, 2, 3 are actually all galaxies. Some of them turned out to be other stellar structures. Um, but in terms of measurements of chemical composition, you know, we have them in, um, for example, the more massive galaxies um, like Andromeda, um, like Andromeda Three, for example. We have them. You know, we do know some things about NGC one four seven and twenty five. Um, it's actually only recently that we've started to learn more about M thirty three. Interestingly enough, despite the fact that it's, you know, this relatively massive beautiful spiral galaxy, but the short answer is surveying these things are hard. But in terms of the study of these more massive dwarf galaxies as a population, um, one thing that we've learned is when you control for stellar mass, uh, which is to say when you look at one of these satellites around Andromeda and you look at a similar satellite around the Milky Way with a similar stellar mass, um, there isn't a significant difference in their chemical properties again when controlled for the stellar mass of the galaxy
0: i mean the the big takeaway i'm getting from this is yeah we've learned a lot about uh what is and isn't related but there are still a large number of surprises out there that that still require active investigation if we want to answer them how how did andromeda get this weird unusual galaxy uh M32 orbiting around it and how did that come to be is that is that a stripped core of a once more massive galaxy or is it uh is it an unusual galaxy that formed this very compact structure uh i i personally don't even know the answer to that one uh is Oh the- no
1: no one knows the answer to that one <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't feel bad about it then. Although although I do want to know, right? These are. It, it sounds like this is where we are. It sounds like you've brought us right up to the frontiers of of what we know and what we're looking out at, and the questions we're asking uh, with the tools we have. Are there are there particular either observations you can't wait until we have in hand, or are there particular technologies that you think like, wow, once we once we develop these, we'll be able to answer a whole slew of questions that I'm really curious about, or even are there observations that that you have in the pipeline that you're like, this This is just the data that once I get my hands on this, uh, some of these burning questions or some of these ideas that have multiple scenarios that could work for them now, that we're going to get answers for them. Do you, when you look ahead to what's coming over the next, I don't know, 5, 10, maybe even 20 years to say, okay, and once we know this, uh, a whole new universe is going to open up to us.
1: Well, I'll, I'll start with uh, the bigger picture of where the field is going in terms of, of technology. And, and one thing I think that basically every astronomer most astronomers are excited for is the next generation of ground-based telescopes, you know, the extremely large telescopes, um, and the combination of that with some of the space-based telescopes, for example, like the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope, um, and... I'm very excited for that because the the diameter of these telescopes, right, they will be, you know, 30 meter class telescopes, which is um, a factor of three larger than the current state of the art in the ground. which are 10 meter class telescopes, right? So we will be able to go out much further into the universe um, in terms of applying the techniques that we currently use within the local group. So what I'm talking about in terms of my research is things like, I look at individual giant stars in galaxies at the edge of the local group, and I measure their chemical composition. I measure their Velocities. We are limited to within the local group for that right now, based on our current technology. But the extremely large telescopes will be able uh, to do that in the local volume. We'll... Out- be able to go out to four megaparsecs.
0: So that's talking like 13 million light years. So you're actually talking about capturing some of these big galaxies in nearby galaxy groups that are outside of the local group, including, uh, we mentioned uh, Messier 81, Bode's galaxy, and Messier 82, the Cigar galaxy. Uh, that's within those four megaparsecs. So you'll be able to capture, you're saying individual giant stars in in these galaxies as well.
1: Yes, and and this is with... Uh, stellar spectroscopy, right? So we can currently use something like the Hubble Space Telescope to look at um, the photometry, right? So the light, you know, the brightness and the colors of stars um, in galaxies like, you know, M82, M81, Centaurus A, some of these larger galaxy groups and systems in the local volume. Um, But spectroscopy provides just so much more additional information about a star, again, going to the, the motions, the chemical compositions. So in terms of learning about galaxy assembly history, it, it will be an incredibly rich data set, you know, if we're able to survey all these galaxies, you know, it won't be just the Milky Way and Andromeda anymore, in terms of these more massive galaxies, where we have this type of information. Um, and most of the galaxies in the local volume, admittedly, about 80% are dwarf galaxies, but that will still be extraordinarily interesting for expanding our sample size. One of the ongoing open questions is, are the satellite galaxy systems in the local group representative of, you know, satellite systems in the broader universe? Um, We don't entirely know yet. Um, That's one thing that these types of studies will be helpful for addressing. So that's really exciting um, for me personally, you know, with the Roman Space Telescope, Will be able to do things like the Panandromeda Archaeological Survey, which I mentioned earlier. An M thirty one or Andromeda will be able to do that. You know, out to ten megaparsecs. Um, you know, we'll be able to do studies. They won't be quite comparable to that, but you know, sort of similar in principle. We'll be able to do those within the local volume um, as well. And, and again, the, the power here is really the complement with this spectroscopy That's what I'm excited about. And within the local group, though, we'll be able to do the same type of science with much less uh, expense in terms of telescope time, um, right? So it takes, I have to point a telescope at Andromeda, you know, a 10-meter class telescope at Andromeda for like five or six hours to do my science which is a huge expense.
0: Oh, right. But with a, with a telescope that's three times the diameter, you actually get nine times the light gathering power in addition to the factor of three better resolution. So not only can you go farther out, but you can spend just a tiny fraction of the time looking at that same region of space to get that superior data.
1: Exactly. So for a star of, say, the same brightness or something that you're looking at in a galaxy at the edge of the local group, you'll be able to achieve the same data quality um, a few times faster, Um, which will be significant um, just because you can cover much more area Um, in terms of looking. So not only can you cover more area, but then if you go... Longer, right? With this more powerful telescope, you can get more detailed information. So we're not talking, say, just iron or the alpha elements anymore, but we're talking the really heavy elements.
0: So you're talking about like like lead and even the uh, like like you're talking about going way up the periodic table here.
1: Yeah, exactly. We're looking at things like barium, you know, barium, europium, these. Um, S-process and R-process elements, so they tell you about different nucleosynthetic pathways. So that's not my, you know, personal area of research, but I'm adjacent to it. Um, And that will be impactful for learning about, you know, what are the sites of element formation in the universe and how does it depend on environment um, in other galaxies. So we currently don't have those types of measurements in Andromeda. For example it's it's generally too challenging uh there are ways to do it which i've thought about but <laughs> i won't go into that uh right now um but that will be really useful and in terms of combining it with something like again the roman space telescope what we'll be able to get is um an additional dimension in velocity space throughout the local group so right now when we look at say you know at work galaxy like um Draco or NGC 6822 or whichever one you want to pick or Andromeda or M33 in terms of just other galaxy examples, all we can get is a radial velocity for a star generally. Um, But we should be able to get proper motions, which are the other, you know, two dimensions of velocities, um, you know, down to a certain brightness limit, like throughout the local group basically, which will be, again, very powerful for looking at distinct stellar populations. Um, It will be powerful for actually doing things like making mass measurements of Andromeda. Um, We should be able to learn more about the outskirts of the Milky Way, which are actually really challenging to study, although they're closer to us than the dwarf galaxies in Andromeda. Um, So we should be able to, you know, better constrain the total mass of uh, the Milky Way, learn more about its dark matter halo. Um, so in the long term, as a summary, that's what I'm excited about. That's where I see the field going. Um, but it's gonna be a while before we get there, right? Um, it takes a while to build the telescopes, the instruments, get all the money.
0: <laughs> right. but. But a lot of these things are are in progress right now. The giant Magellan telescope and the European Extremely Large Telescope, they're they're being built. They've broken ground. They're under construction. Uh they should be operational, fully operational, uh in about uh I think anywhere between four to seven years for these telescopes. Uh the Nancy Roman telescope, you know, now that the James Webb Space Telescope has launched. That's NASA's next flagship mission, and it's going to have the power of all the power of Hubble, except it's gonna have like fifty to a hundred times the field of view and a suite of superior instruments, right? Hubble's instruments haven't been upgraded since, what, 2009 with the last servicing mission? So having instruments on board that'll be 20 years more up-to-date in addition to this field of view that's 50 to 100 times as large as Hubble means you're going to be grabbing huge amounts of information about these things, and the idea that you'll be able to measure proper motions of stars, I mean, that's astounding to me. When we look at the original, very first image photograph of Andromeda that was ever taken, this goes back something to like something like 1888, which is 135 years in the past. Um, And if we look at a modern image of Andromeda, all of the features look like they're in exactly the same place. And you're telling me that we're actually going to be able to detect with just a couple of years of difference how these stars within Andromeda are moving in three-dimensional space, not just along the line of sight, but up and down and left and right on the sky as well. Like, that's that's incredible. So when we combine all of these different data sets together, we're not only going to be able to say something about the general picture of galaxy assembly and how they grew up we're going to be able to say specifically and here's what happened to the largest galaxy in our local group over its history that's that's incredible
1: yes exactly so huge gains within the local group and opening up a a whole new world of galaxies within the local volume to study at this level of detail um so as you said it's gonna take at least a few years to several years um you know for for some of these facilities so it may not be until 2030 ish for for like for example some of the ground-based telescopes and these projects often take longer than you know astronomers optimistically hope so the question is you know what are we doing until then (laughs) within Uh, my subfield and within my own research um i mean we're in the era of, of large spectroscopic surveys we like to use the term like industrial scale basically um there's a lot that you can also do with smaller telescopes four meter class telescopes particularly within the milky way and even in some of the very nearby dwarf galaxies um in terms of surveying the local group uh I'm excited about the prime uh, the Subaru prime focus spectrograph survey so it's going to have multiple components but the Galactic archaeology survey in particular is going to be surveying um the more inaccessible regions of the Milky Way's stellar halo its outer disk um some of its dwarf galaxies in- including some isolated dwarf galaxies and also mapping um basically contiguously like a large portion of Andromeda's inner halo. And again, I cannot emphasize, it's good that you mentioned, you know, the, the scale of the Roman field of view compared to the Hubble Space Telescope, because we're really limited, right, about like how large some of these things are on the sky. It's, it's difficult to fully map any of these systems to get a complete picture of their formation history. Um, so, you know, prime the subaru prime focus spectrograph is something that will assist in that in the nearer term um so i'm excited about that there are other plans in the work but in terms of like smaller scale things so i'm sort of a classical observer um so i tend to work in smaller teams i am a part of the pfs collaboration which is partly why i'm plugging it a little bit but i am also genuinely excited for it and i think it will be great um But in general, you know, me and a a small team of collaborators, we uh, do principal investigator-led projects, you know, where we apply for telescope time and we look at things that remain unexplored within the local group. So I'm excited about our upcoming survey to look at the southwestern disk of Andromeda, which we have already collected um, much of the data for um, using the Keck telescopes. Um, And this is really exciting because, as I alluded to earlier, we actually know very little about the southwestern disc. Again, the footprint of the FAT survey is in the northeastern component. That has been traditionally what's been studied. Um, So I think there's much more that we can learn about um, stellar disc formation in particular. Um, So that's what I'm thinking about right now. That's what I'll be working on for the next 1 to 2 years and also I'll, I will be working on M32. <laughs> Just going back to the question of we don't know what the hell this thing is.
0: <laughs> no, and and that's wonderful. You know, I want to thank you for this this tour of the local frontier. Uh and also for explaining to us how it fits in to some of these bigger questions about how basically how the universe grows up because that's you know, I, I often explain to people that that's the big difference between the Hubble Space Telescope and the James Webb Space Telescope, that, that Hubble has taught us what the universe looks like, and it it really has, but JWST is teaching us how the universe grew up. And it seems like through a variety of multi-wavelength and multi-technique observations and combining them with simulations, that that's exactly what you're studying as well, except from an entirely different and extremely local perspective. Uh, So I wanna thank you, uh, Dr. Ivana Escala, for for bringing us along this tour. And I'd like to ask you before we wrap this episode up, if you have any final thoughts for our listeners out there.
1: Uh, Yes, Ethan. Um, It's been great to be on this podcast. Thanks again um, so much for having me here. And in terms of final thoughts for the podcast listeners, um, I guess, yeah, really emphasizing going back to this historical perspective, if there's any larger takeaway that I would like the listeners to remember is that um, galaxy assembly is is still a very active field of research. And, And although we are sort of, we're no longer in the discovery era, at least in terms of the local universe where everywhere you point your telescope in the sky, you're learning something entirely new. I think it's really become a science of complexity, and a science of the details. Um, But I think that there is still much to be gained uh, in that regime.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That's, this has been a fascinating discussion. And thanks to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been Ethan Siegel with Dr. Ivana Escala talking about how galaxies grow up and what we've learned and what we're gonna continue to learn by examining the local universe that we can examine in greater detail than anywhere else. Thanks to our sponsor, Avenues Online. And thank you to our Patreon supporters without whom this podcast would not be possible. I'd like to give a shout out to everyone who donates to us at the $5 a month level and above. So thanks go to Chad Marlar, Jeff Bonwick, Laney Chuist, Rob Hansen, Samir Kumar, Tim Graham, Aaron Weiss, Chris Jakutas, John Mithot, John Van Balaguyen, Matt Conroe, Pattern Shift, Pete Smoyer, Pierre Sea Seagreen Mango, Stefan Berneger, William Blair, Amira Sosnick, Andy and Wall, Benish Tech LLC, Brian Terry, David Charney, Flo, George Church, John Kozura, Joseph Dvorak, Jose Enrique, Opu, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Matt Glasser, Patrick Dennis, Pedro Teixeira, Rafał Wojcik, Randall Slimak, Rick Baker, Ron Schiffman, Sean Foley, Steve Guderian, Adam Robinson, Adrian Griffiths, Alan Parik, Andres Chovanec, Arnulfo Zepeda, Ben Bob Shire, Brainwise, Brett Minder, Carl Ittings, Casey Haskins, Dan Steelen, Dana Bridges, David Hibbets David Taschioni David Wolfe, Dick Pills, Dwayne Williams, Fraser Kane Gabriel Nader Glenn McDavid, Ira Cohen, James Bryson Hyatt, James Nance, Jason Luttrell, Jason McCampbell, Javier Zazo, Jeff Renike, Kelly Kudrick, Lockwood Carlson, Mark Bloor, Mark Langston, Michael Hall, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Nathan Hannon, Neil Flood, Owen Mann, Pam Harris, Paul Lester... Pavel Zuzelski, Philip Francis, Radek Nesbida, Rich Weigel, Richard Schwartz, Ron Lyle, Roushin Shah, Sam Serzakian, Steve Nordhoff, Stuart Lending, Tina Tallon, Tom Van Scotter, Tomas All, Tomas Walgren, Wayne Pikarski, Weller Tractor Salvage, William Vanden Heuvel, and Young Co. S. Thanks to all of you for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang.